due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Remember, nothing is as valuable as information. Lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This podcast is produced and hosted by Chris Carr. On today's podcast, we're going to take a look at PREVENT. PREVENT is the name given to the UK government's Countering Violent Extremism program. PREVENT is about safeguarding people and communities from the threat of terrorism. And on the podcast, I'm joined by two PREVENT practitioners, Sean Arbuthnot and William Bulday. Both of them were on the podcast previously in 2018, and so this is kind of like a a two years later catch-up, and we're finding out about uh, what's changed, what hasn't changed, and about new and emerging threats. If you're enjoying the work I do on this podcast, please consider supporting the show by becoming a Patreon subscriber. If you go to patreon.com forward slash secrets and spies, you can join there and you'll get early access to episodes. And from September, you'll be getting transcripts of new episodes as well. And in September, I'm going to organize a Patreon members meetup. And if it's successful, that will hopefully be a semi-regular event. You can also connect with us on Twitter by going to at Secrets and Spies. And if you're a regular listener to the show, you're probably fed up with me talking about this, but I have a film called The Dry Cleaner. The Dry Cleaner is my first attempt at contemporary spy fiction, and you can now buy my short film on Amazon and iTunes. If you just search The Dry Cleaner Film, it should come up, and it's about $1.99. If you become a Patreon subscriber at $15, you will get a free copy of The Dry Cleaner included. One last thing. We now have a shop in which you can get memorabilia for the podcast you can get phone cases cups t-shirts and even cooking aprons every purchase helps support the podcast if you search below there is a link to our red bubble store however if you go onto Redbubble and search secrets and spies the shop should come up but there is a dedicated link in your app if you scroll down now you will find it you also find links to everything we discussed today and you'll find links to patreon and my film The Dry Cleaner. Thank you very much for listening, and thank you very much for your support. I hope you enjoy this one. Take care. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Sean and William, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Nice to be back. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us again. Well, it's great to have you back on. And it's been, we last spoke in 2018, which uh, with the coronavirus, everything feels like a lifetime ago now. Even last week feels like a lifetime ago. But um, so for, before we kick off, for the benefit of new listeners, um, can I? Can you both sort of tell me something about yourselves so the um, audience can get an idea of who you are, what your expertise are? And we'll start with Sean. Lovely, thank you. My name is Sean Arbuthnot and uh, I'm a Prevent Coordinator um, based in the Midlands. So I cover Leicester, Leicestershire and Rutland. Um, I've been in that role now for a couple of years, but prior to that, I was a police officer for 12 years, mm. uh, predominantly working in Prevent during the latter part of that time. So I've, all in all, I've been involved in Prevent for about seven years now. Excellent. And how about yourself? Uh, yeah, so um, I started in Prevent 2008. So what's that? Twelve, Just over 12 years ago. Uh, started off working for quite a small rural police force 
uh, as a prevent kind of community officer, uh, then became a prevent coordinator, um, same as Sean, uh, in Leicester, specifically mm. in Leicestershire, uh, and then have moved to this more kind of regional strategic role across East and West Midlands um, as a regional coordinator on prevent, but also working on some some other projects, particularly around right wing terrorism. So I'm actually Will's replacement ah, in Leicester. Ah, okay. So as you can imagine, those are. Uh, pretty big shoes to fill <laughs> i think you've done a pretty good job excellent excellent well we recorded an interview back in uh, it was march 2018 um, if i remember correctly and obviously we were discussing prevent the government's countering violence extremism program and um so just for the benefit of listeners who may not have caught that interview could you just one of you or both of you give us a sort of quick dummies guide to what prevent is and how it operates we spoke in 2018 and that was when prevent got a kind of a rewrite if mm. you like mm. in the 2018 iteration of contest which is the the overarching counterterrorism strategy for the UK and all the different strands of work that take place within that prevent is one of those strands of work. Um, officially, in, in terms of what it aspires to do, is to tackle the causes of radicalisation uh, and respond to the ideological challenge of those those kind of groups that are trying to to promote and, and to amplify terrorism. The bit it's probably most famous for is supporting those at risk. So where someone um, is either vulnerable to exploitation and radicalisation or someone who has their own agency and, and is heading that way themselves mm. um, using kind of early intervention, mm. traditional safeguarding principles. How do we get involved in their lives? Totally confidential, completely voluntary as well. It's a consens consensual process and see if we can maybe course correct them from, from the road they're on. And then in 2018, the bit that changed dramatically for prevent was bringing in um, what they call desistance and disengagement programs. So rather than saying we're just about preventing the radicalization process, this new kind of bolt on to prevent was about saying, okay, someone has now been radicalized, they've crossed that threshold into criminality, they're potentially going to come out of prison or whatever it may be. Let's see if we can somehow rehabilitate and disengage them from mm -hmm. terrorist narratives and from their support for terrorism. So that was quite a fundamental change. The reason I think it, it found itself embedded in Prevent is because when you then went to different meetings uh, for people who were there to talk about disengagement from radicalization, it was exactly the same people who were talking about preventing the process of radicalization. So it just became a, a kind of a natural fit for it to sit within Prevent. Um, as the as the strategy within within contest, so that's the official structure, yeah. if you like, of, of yeah. prevent. Sean, did you want to say anything more? Just that I guess, obviously, a lot of work goes into countering terrorism, mm. and there's a strong focus on the policing side of things mm. when you think about, you know, making arrests and um, responding to terrorist attacks trying to improve our infrastructure and our security and things like that. But the Assistant Commissioner from the Met, Neil Basu, who heads up counterterrorism policing, has repeatedly said that prevent is the most important element of our counterterrorism strategy. And it's often said that we can't arrest our way out of the problem of terrorism. Mm. So that opens up a niche for prevent to try and safeguard people and stop them from supporting terrorism or getting involved in the first instance. It's almost like a, a public health solution you know, in terms of trying to identify people who are vulnerable mm. and then with their consent, putting in place that wraparound care and support, as well as working with other organizations, uh, youth groups, etc., to uh, put in place projects and workshops uh, and different social programs in order to try and raise awareness and build extremism against radicalization and extremism. Yeah, I mean, if you if you take a lot of people are, are more familiar with the public health model than they are something like prevent or counterterrorism. But if you view prevent in terms of, of a pyramid, and at the very kind of that the, the, 
biggest sort of base of that pyramid, you've got tackling the causes of radicalization. That would be that kind of broader message. Let's say it was a, an anti-smoking message. That's mm. that broader message about, you know, smoking is bad for you. This is what it leads to. These are the different ills and, and ailments that can, that can befall you if you smoke. And that's kind of a community-wide or society-wide approach to, to, to messaging. Mm. As you move up to sort of the second tier of a pyramid in the public health model, you would have those that are definitely more at risk of starting to smoke. Um, and, the, and the statistics and the research will tell you, particularly around teenage years, uh, there are certain demographics that are more inclined to, to smoke. Um, and you want to, or some who have just started smoking, and you want to have a more tailored approach, a more tailored intervention that targets those individuals to, to stop them from smoking. And then at the very tip, obviously, you've got people who are smokers and potentially heavy smokers. And then there is a different and far more precise intervention, possibly a surgical intervention, to try and um, remove any ailments or cancer, whatever it may be. So mm. that kind of pyramid structure to a public health model has been used quite frequently in Prevent as well. And, you, and you'll, you'll tend to see the pyramid mm. if you start Googling Prevent or the contest strategy. And you'll be able to straight away see those parallels and similarities with public health messaging. Yeah, yeah. Well, has anything changed for Prevent uh, during the two years since we last spoke? I guess specifically regarding Prevent, it's fair to say that, um, I mean, it's a constantly evolving strategy. Yeah. And whilst it doesn't look drastically different mm. than it did two years ago, looking at it from the inside, I think that there have been really significant changes. I mean, Will's already mentioned that in the summer of 2018, the entire contest strategy was reviewed. Yeah. And so as a result of that, it's a lot more comprehensive and Prevent Now incorporates that persistence and disengagement program that he mentioned. Um, we've also had the announcement of an independent review of Prevent uh, at the start of 2019, yeah. which has been a wee bit stop-start, uh, but it, a new reviewer is due to be in place soon, so that's an ongoing process as well. But I guess at an operational level, if we look at the bigger picture, so the threat level in the UK has been downgraded since we last spoke. Yeah. It, it's now substantial, but at, you know that's still pretty significant because it means that a, an attack is still likely. Mm. We've seen terror attacks both in the UK and abroad, you know, things like Christchurch spring to mind. Mm. In the UK, I think it's fair to say that the main threat that we're seeing still comes from Islamist-inspired violence. Mm. There have been about 25, I think, at the last count, thwarted attacks a, yeah. since early 2017. Wow. Yeah. We're seeing how uh, the extreme right wing is becoming a fast-growing threat. And another trend that we're actually seeing uh, for practitioners in Prevent is a uh, is a rise in referrals who have a mixed or an unclear ideology. So mm. people are being referred to us and they don't necessarily have a particular affiliation with a group or political ideology, but may have a, a fascination or an aspiration to commit mass violence, oftentimes inspired by US style school and college attacks. Mm, mm. And I think they accounted for around 38% of all prevent referrals um, at the last time of recording figures, which was 2018-19. I mean, generally, the, the the number of referrals that we're receiving are, are fairly consistent. It's about 6,000 a year or so. But we're certainly being kept pretty busy. And then the other big change that I've seen, I, Will may disagree with me on this, but I'm more of an optimist than he is, but I do think that the debate around Prevent has shifted a wee bit. I think it's become a bit more nuanced and it's seen as less of a boogeyman by... You'll always get a minority of staunch critics, but I do think that, that more openness and transparency from the Prevent Network, like the release of figures on an annual basis or 
cooperating with academic research or even contributing to storylines in, in Hollyoaks, uh, I think that we've we've seen a, a kind of a, sh- a shift uh, where Prevent is, um, I guess, m- much less seen as you know the, the toxic brand narrative that you used to hear about. In fact, recent research from Crest Advisory, published earlier on this year, found that amongst British Muslims' attitudes towards Prevent find little support for those kind of toxic brand narratives and actually broad support for Prevent. So I I think there has been a a shift in the last couple of years. Yeah. Well, is there anything you want to add to that? Yeah. So I I would, I am the pessimist. Um, And and it's just, the experience has taught me to be, to be pessimistic. If if for no other reason, you can always, you're always pleasantly surprised by the outcome if it's different. Um, (laughs) But I would, um, I would agree. I would agree that in the mainstream, Prevent Mm. attracts far more support than you would believe if you open the pages of the Guardian or or look to some of these quite small but very very vocal activists and lobby kind of groups. You know, they're very good at lobbying politicians. They're very good at getting their stories into the media. You'll see isolated examples of bad practice that are then amplified. I mean, you, silly ones like the terrorist house is is, is one of the most famous, where uh, you know, the child wrote, um, I, "I live in a terrorist house instead of terrorist house." Um, and it apparently triggered some great counterterrorism response. When in actual fact, it was a, a local cop that went to visit the house because he'd also mm. written in the same essay. His uncle beats him, and whilst they were there, they asked the question about yeah. about about the, the spelling and what he meant by this. And is there anything else mm. other than domestic violence they need to be concerned about? So you get an isolated example like that that then gets amplified as some kind of um, call to scrap the entire strategy. And I do think that most people see through that. I think that for, by and large, the general public are, are not bought into that. There was some really it's interesting that sean picks out some the crest advisory research which i do advise people to go looking for it's very very interesting results um there was similarly there was there was a piece of anti-prevent mm. research of which there are quite a few they read more like polemics than pieces of academia but they're they're they're, they're always good for a laugh if you want to have a look at what what the other side is saying but this was remarkable because when you look at what happened on university campuses and some of the coordinated and, and sometimes quite sinister campaigns against Prevent, the amount of disinformation and misinformation being peddled to kind of raise anxieties and, and create fear in, in, the, in the populations that were being targeted by these groups. Um, when this anti-Prevent research went on to a variety of university campuses and interviewed over 2,000 students, 75% of them said that they supported Prevent. Yeah. And 9%, just 9% said that they had a problem with it. Now, that's from a piece of anti-prevent research. And that's in the wake of coordinated campaigns against the strategy as well. Mm. So mm. if you look at that as a microcosm, when you have that amount of misinformation and you still have people saying, I'm not buying that, mm. I support prevent. Mm. Um, then I think it, for me, that tells its own story. But you're not going to read that in the national press. You're not going to read it on the websites. It's not going to be an interesting headline for Channel 4 News. Um, so we get the individual examples and cases. Mm, mm. But I, I do agree with Sean. I do think there was, there was a much larger support for Prevent um, than these kind of activist voices would have you believe. Uh, and just to pick up on your point about some of the changes, um, and I don't know if we'll come on to this later, but Sean is right that the the kind of mix and unclear ideology is definitely on the increase. Mm. What's interesting about those cases is that very often, because the ideology is either quite weak or quite fluid, it can be interchangeable between different um, strands of ideology. It's the underlying factors that become more important for for a safeguarding principle to be adopted to, to then create some kind of resolution. So actually, we're not focusing so much on ideology in those cases. We're 
looking at the unmet needs of the individual. Maybe it's mental health issues. Maybe it's it's something closer to home. But those are the factors that we're trying to resolve. And there is nothing in the Terrorism Act of 2000, which is which is what drives most of our business, to say that you know if you're driven by an ideology, you have to have been committed to that ideology for a particular period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, so having a fluid ideology doesn't take it outside of the world of prevent or outside of the world of, of counterterrorism. Uh, and I guess the last thing to point to, to pick up on is just in terms of the number of cases that we actually adopt for some kind of resolution or intervention. We do that through a process called channel, which is essentially, it is what it says, it's channeling people into, into a safer place. Um, and if you look at the statistics there, so the last ones we've got are for 2018 to 19 at the moment. So I think we adopted 560-ish cases um, in total, specifically for prevent intervention. So there was a, a clear cut issue around radicalization that was identified that needs to be resolved. Um, if you look at those figures, 45% of those were for far-right extremism and just under that 37% for Islamist radicalization. So whilst Sean is right, Islamist radicalization is still the biggest problem we face. It's 90% of our of, mm. of the broader casework of contest in, in terms of the overarching counterterrorism strategy. In terms of the prevent cases we're seeing, right-wing extremism and right-wing terrorism is the fastest growing, albeit it's got a long way to go yet. Mm. But it's just interesting that we've seen that dramatic shift um, in the last few years, certainly since we last spoke as well. It's been an almost exponential increase, not just in prevent cases, but also in in um, investigations as well. I think I think that's a good example of the early intervention work that Prevent does because we're almost seeing these issues and these trends before they escalate into the criminal space, if that makes sense. Mm, mm. So it's, it's no surprise to learn that 45% of channel cases are far right related, yet that proportion isn't reflected in the wider number of uh, prosecutions and counterterrorism investigations. Mm, mm. It's because prevent practitioners are, are at the coalface spotting these signs early and, and being able to intervene. Yeah. I think a fundamental change more broadly in counterterrorism is that as of the end of last year, beginning of this year, mm. for the most serious right-wing terrorism investigations, MI5 now have primacy. They have yeah. taken over control of those investigations and that's something that, that wasn't the case previously. So that was the police who handled that before, was it? Yeah, so it was it was it was counterterrorism policing that, that was the, the lead investigator on those mm. cases. And we are still talking about the most serious end of the scale. Um, so it was it's a dramatic institutional shift for MI5 to take over right wing terrorism cases. But it, it also should tell us um, the, mm. the the seriousness with which that threat is being taken. Yeah. Yeah. So back to sort of the criticism, I feel like we have covered something already, but it's like um, when we last spoke, I mean, like Prevent used to get blamed for an awful lot of things. Um, And so I was wondering kind of what are some of the sort of typical criticisms of Prevent and are some of them fair? Uh, Are some of them deeply unfair, do you think? I think it's a mix. I think they fall into the two camps. I mean, the first thing I'd say is that Prevent should be criticised. We should be scrutinised. Because we don't necessarily get everything right, then there should always be room for improvement. So if there's mm. objective, reasonable observers, academics, commentators, then I think that we should listen to them and engage with them. Yeah. Uh, and with that in mind, I think that anybody who's got a view on Prevent, whether that's positive or negative, should engage with the independent review when it's up and running again. Um, otherwise, how can people expect to affect change if they don't? engage with those who can actually shape the future of the strategy, potentially even scrap it, mm. you know? Mm. But like I said, I think that the, the criticisms kind of come into into two camps. First of all, there are the the typical myths and misconceptions, I think, that have dominated the narrative over the years. You know, the, the, the 
focus on Muslims and spying and surveillance and criminalizing people, negative effect on freedom of speech, all of those sorts of things. I I disagree with all of those. I don't think there's any basis for them in reality. I prefer to focus on the the genuine practical areas for improvement. You know, can our risk assessments be improved? Uh, what about our focus on British values or or people's perceptions of prevent? Um, but I do think, like I mentioned earlier, I do think the debate has, has moved on a wee bit. I don't know, maybe it's because I'm spending less time on social media these days. Um, but I do think that I spend, I seem to be spending less time trying to explain to people what the basics of prevent is mm. and more time actually getting into the weeds of particular issues. I don't know if, if you feel the same, Well, Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I absolutely agree with Sean. We, we, you know, we're, we're not above reproach and we, we need scrutiny. We need to be criticised, but it needs to be objective. And I kind of, I, I kind of, I put our critics into into distinct camps. And I, I mean, very loosely, you've got those authentic critics who who genuinely understand. And I think, I think the significant difference between the ones that I think I have um, a lot of time for are the ones that they do understand that there is a problem out there of radicalization, whatever is causing it, whatever is bringing it about. They may have different views on that but they accept and acknowledge that there is a problem out there and the problem seems to be getting worse. And it's not just getting worse here in the UK because people don't like this government or their policies. It's getting worse across the world, the Western world, the Eastern world. It's getting worse in villages in Kenya and Somalia and Ethiopia and and other areas of Africa. It's getting worse. And they accept that there is a problem. They accept that there are geographical um, differences as to why that problem might be the way it is. So it's different on the streets of Birmingham as it is you know, in Harare, for example, you know, poverty is probably a bigger driver in the third world than it is in, in the West. But they accept there is a problem and they accept that there needs yeah, to be a solution. Yeah. And a social care approach that still keeps people safe on the streets, but at the same time looks to resolve underlying factors as well as the ideology is the most sensible way forward. And they look at something like prevent and they say, OK, in, in essence, it makes absolute sense. But let's make sure we get it right. Let's make sure we don't make the problem worse or cause harm in the, in the process of trying to do good. Um, and they will, some of them in academia, some of them in, are in NGOs, some of them in, in political parties, but they essentially understand the problem and want the solution to be the, the right solution and the best fit. And I would call them authentic critics and I would give them any time in the world that they, they demanded of me to listen to them. And absolutely, yeah. they should engage with the independent review when it's up and running. But there are those that I, and I, I, I don't, you know, mince my words, that they are dishonest critics. Mm. They refuse to believe that there is a problem of ideology. They refuse to believe that there is a problem of radicalization. When um, when we say that there is a, an Islamist ideology, which again is a very broad description of a lot of kind of complex mm. um, different mm. strands, or that there is an issue with, yeah. for example, right-wing um, ideology or extreme right-wing ideology, they will say, no, 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 it's all about government policy. And if you change your foreign policy, there'll be no Islamist terrorists, which is an absolute nonsense because we've, we've had the world's largest terrorist organization for, for generations explicitly say that by all means, go ahead and change your foreign policy. We really don't give a toss. We're still going to kill you mm. because we hate you, because you're pluralist, because you're atheist, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Essentially, you're not Muslim and you don't subscribe to our very narrow interpretation of the faith. So by all means, change your foreign policy. We're still going to kill you. And then you look on the other side of the equation. And then, so if you're going to have that as your argument, it's all about government policy or Western policy and not ideology or a combination of the two. When you then look to the other side of the coin and you look at neo-Nazi and white supremacist ideology, do we then say, oh, in that case, they must be right about immigration? 
and the great replacement mm. and demographic change. So mm. if they're right, let's let's change not just our foreign policy, but let's change our our immigration policy and other domestic policies as well. At which point you then start adapting your policies based on the whims of terrorist organizations who may or may not want to bomb you. It just doesn't seem a sensible approach no. and it ignores ideology. So dishonest critics completely ignore ideology. They they refute that there is an issue with radicalization or terrorism more broadly. Mm. And they they are not open to looking at, therefore, what the solutions need to be. And I, I genuinely believe that the 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 core essence of the anti-prevent lobby if you like is one that is uh, is ideologically opposed to prevent because it does seek at its core to tackle the ideologies that are problematic as well so i i mean i've spoken to some of these critics and what i will say is by and large they believe what they're saying now, I, I would tend to say that that is more the followers of certain organizations that believe what they're saying. I think some of these organizations are at the root core of this. And I'm talking about groups like Kate, for example, who famously, you know, called Jihadi John a beautiful young man and have, mm. have praised other, other terrorists or Prevent Watch, which seems to have links to Hizbut Tahrir, which itself is banned in sort of 12, 13 Muslim majority countries. I think the people at the heads of those organizations specifically know that what they're saying is disingenuous. I, I genuinely believe that. And they can argue that, mm. they're entitled to argue that point mm. with me, but I believe that they know they're being disingenuous. But I also believe that they have a a reasonably, a small but significant following who have drunk yeah. the Kool-Aid and, and are believing what they're told by these groups. Uh, and I do think we need to engage with, with these these individuals. I think we do need to, to address those anxieties people have and the best way to do that well it's twofold one is for them to engage in the process of the review and the other one is to be as, as transparent as we possibly can so now we publish our data on referrals to the program um every year yeah um the 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 threat assessments and the risk assessments we use on individual cases uh they've been peer reviewed we've published the peer review on that the entire policy itself what it's set out to do and I guess more importantly, how it's going to try and achieve that is published in the, the 2018 mm, contest mm. strategy. It's completely there out in the open. Um, you know, Sean and I can both tell you that the, the local plan in Leicester uh, is published online. That plan sets out this is the local risk. This is what we're going to do about it. These are the actions we're going to take. That's available for anybody to view uh, online, completely transparent. Uh, we do podcasts, yourself being, being a case in point. We do interviews with journalists on radio, on TV. We completely lift the lid on our work. We've brought people into um, our towns and cities to look at the program and record the program in action, to take away their interpretation of it, what they think of it, to talk to their listeners and to their viewers. Um, we've had people even come into the, the, the safeguarding boards, the channel boards themselves, and listen to the conversations taking place about the vulnerable people uh, and what kind of steps are being taken to, to keep them safe. So we, we are transparent now. The one thing we always have to be careful of, of though, Chris, is that there is always going to be that line when we simply can't be be too yeah. transparent. And, and it's yeah. not for, because we're trying to be secret, but there are there are reasons for that. So if I give you quite a, a good case in point, we do work with, with NGOs on the Prevent program. And some of the, the best work that goes on in local communities on the ground are through NGOs that are brought up and raised in those communities and understand those communities. And they do counter-extremism work, they do de-radicalization work, uh, they do outreach and workshops and education programs. 
Um, but we have a duty of care to them. And where we're not going to be completely transparent, for example, is just to create a website where we publish all of their names online and say, these are all the people in different communities doing counterterrorism work, simply because we, we have to have that, that duty of care. We had an example not that many years ago where a different organization, an organization called CAGE, uh, apparently or seemingly working with, with the Guardian newspaper, it would appear, uh, certainly the rumours would, would, would have you believe, actually set about publishing the names of some of these NGOs. Uh, and the way the report was was written and the way the reporting in The Guardian went was clearly to criticise and ostracise anyone from the Muslim community that was working on counter-extremism programmes. Now, mm. these people are doing it to keep their communities safe and they're doing it because mm. they care. Mm. But it created a real problem for some of the individuals in those communities. I think the intention was to, to batter them into silence or to, to batter them into stepping away from doing doing the work. But it made us think really carefully about if we are going to be transparent, we do need to have a threshold by which we, we just don't cross. And for us, publishing their, their details online was one of those thresholds. It, it has been criticised for, for being a lack of transparency. But for me, I, I, I think it's a totally defensible position. And the bottom line for me is, do we really want to be telling the terrorists who it is that is trying to undermine their terrorism and their activities. What I found interesting about the, the, the whole kind of debacle around these about these organizations being kind of outed the, the way they were but by this, this organization cage was that some of the people that they outed as saying this is despicable work, how dare they do this, have actually been approached by some of these critics to do the exact same work in the communities funded by Prevent. So it strikes me that if the work they're doing is so terribly bad and just shouldn't be happening and is somehow part of some great conspiracy, why on earth are our critics trying to poach them from Prevent and pay them to do exactly the same work? So yes, we, we absolutely push for transparency now, but we do have certain thresholds and, and the rationale behind that is really a duty of care to some of the people that are working in this in this area. Yeah, yeah. Well, here's what you kind of semi answered, but I mean, like, um, it was quite, well, not fashionable, but it was quite popular for some prevent critics to say that community based groups should be tackling extremist ideology. Is that possible? Can that, can we rely on the community groups to sort of de radicalize individuals? Who will fund them? My question. You know, at the end of the day, everything is funded by taxpayers' money, so. Mm. Critics who turn their nose up at Prevent because it's government funded, you know, would they say the same thing about other government funding streams and uh, in tackling other social harms or use of public services? So, um, but I think that kind of feeds into the perception that Prevent is this sort of top-down government-backed strategy. But the reality is that our delivery is is led locally. You know, Will's already alluded mm. to it. As, as local coordinators, we're responsible for our our local strategy, our action plans and risk assessments, all based on our own issues, our own sort of threats and risk. And although we're supported by the Home Office, obviously, um, we do have quite a lot of autonomy due to the, the local knowledge that we've got and the partnerships that we've built and the community work. So our prevent delivery in, in Leicester, for example, it wouldn't be identical necessarily to prevent delivery in other parts of the country, you know, Birmingham, Manchester, London, wherever it may be. So we already do work very closely with communities and, and partner organizations. You know, we have a, a prevent steering group made up of different partner groups that, that scrutinize us and hold us to account. We've got a community reference group who keep us in track um, and yeah. local projects and organizations who we work with. 
you know, we facilitate their delivery. By all means, we provide them with funding, but the delivery is down to them. They know their areas, they know their local communities and issues, and, and they do some absolutely brilliant work. So I think we do have a very strong community focus already. Yeah, I, I, I would, you know, I would agree with, I think Sean's spot on that the, the money is going to come from central government. And, and if you look at, if you look at yeah. the, the research out there, counterterrorism um, still sits as number one in the public concerns around their safety and their security. Uh, at the beginning of the year, COVID overtook it. I think we're now back to counterterrorism being the, the prime concern. So mm-hmm. central government has to have a role in that. And obviously they have the money, they can oversee delivery to a certain extent. But if I give an example, so um, if you look at an area or a town or city that has a strong al Mahadroon problem, and then you go elsewhere and you have a town or city that has a strong white supremacist problem, their delivery plans are not going to be the same. Now, what, where central government mm-hmm. can come in, it can say, well, we believe that this particular city is, a, is is quite a high risk. And because of that, it's going to get X amount of funding. This city is a lesser risk. It will get less funding. So government has a responsibility in in apportioning the, the public funds, essentially, the taxpayers' money as to where that where it should be applied. What it can also say is, say, to the Al-Mahajaroon town, where you've got an amazing project here about right-wing, tackling right-wing terrorism. But that isn't your problem. And that isn't your threat. And it's not happening in your city. And actually, we have to be driven by what the evidence is telling us. Yeah. If the evidence is saying you have a strong and burgeoning al Mahajarun problem or Al-Qaeda problem or ISIS problem, that is not a project for you. So they, they have some control over to say that we're, we're not essentially going to fund projects that are nice to have as opposed to need to have. Once the delivery commences, it is all about localism. Your local government, your local council, along with your local coordinator, mm. your local schools, your local NGOs, your local communities, they are the ones shaping and delivering the, the program. And that includes people from your local probation service, local police, local mental health trust, et cetera, et cetera. It's all local people. It then goes back to central government, I guess, on a quarterly basis, just to kind of look over what's happening and say, okay, is there some advice needed, some course correction needed? But anyone that has worked for local authority will tell you there is only a limited amount of influence central government can bring on local authorities. That's even more the case where you have local authorities with, for example, an elected mayor who is more powerful than, than, a, than, a, than a sort of a, a figure piece um, uh, sort of mayor. And based on that, you, you, can, you can quite sort of quite honestly say that it, central government, despite having the money and having the ability to sort of nudge local authorities where they, where they see it's necessary, actually don't have control over those local authorities or how those local programs are delivered. And I, I genuinely don't understand where this myth that somehow Prevent is completely top-down comes from. I speak to people who are critical Mm. friends of Prevent, who are largely supportive of not just the concept of the programme, but the delivery. And they still will say things like, but it just needs to be taken away from central government more. And I'm kind of like, in what way? Which bit do you want to take away? Because right now, Leicester is delivering Leicester's programme with a guy who lives in Leicester, who works in Leicester, working with local Leicester groups. Where, where, Where is central government there in Leicester? They're not. They're yeah. in Whitehall. Which, wh- how, what are you taking away? Which bit of it is top down? And they, they, they don't know. They just say, but I know it's top down. It, it, it's just top down. And there's, they can't evidence that. I've only worked in preventing when it comes to my interactions with local mm. government. And it, it's, it's by and large always been driven by local personalities and, and a local program. Mm. And, and on the occasion, I mean, I have a regional role now, so I can, go to, I can go to local authorities now and say, can you please show me your local risk assessments? Yeah. They, they don't have to send them to me. They do because we're all working together. We're all going in the same direction, but they don't have to send them to me. It's up to, there's no, there's no um, 
overarching top-down imperative that says you must do this. It's just something that is, it's, it's, it's an agreement that, that you know, it, it's taxpayers' money, so let's work together to make sure it's being spent well. Um, so, but you're right. I, I think as Prevent evolves, I mean, when Contest was rewritten in 2018, I think it was, it was a three-year plan. So next year, we will probably see some other tweaks and revisions and evolution of Contest and the different strands within it and, with it, and also Prevent. And obviously, we have the independent review, which is, which is I'm told, due to start reasonably soon. Um, and that will well will go in its own direction as well. But that will follow the evidence. And if the evidence is calling for more localism and more detachment from Whitehall, then those are the recommendations that will that will be laid down. I do, I do think it's interesting that the debates around prevent can sometimes be quite politicised, so mm. that anti-prevent sentiment is oftentimes intertwined with anti-government sentiment, mm. depending mm. on who the government of the day is. Um, but prevent's been around for a wee while now, and it's you know, been around during Labour governments and coalition governments and Conservative governments. So, again, I don't, that doesn't fit comfortably with me, that kind of anti-government sentiment, mm. you know, whenever it comes to attitudes towards prevent, because we're we're quite, um, I don't want to say independent of, of government, but you don't, you know what I mean? We, we, we work locally according to what our local threat and risk is, and it, it's not necessarily the government that's sitting there telling us, what to do so i don't think that that distinction is as clear you're not getting the home secretary calling you up to tell tell you to do certain things not recently no <laughs> no <laughs> have you blocked a number <laughs> I, well, i'll give you an example so you know how how involved central government is you know 12, 12 years i've been working in prevent i've met one home secretary for 45 minutes mm. and that was an accident because they just happened mm. to be passing through leicester on that day <laughs> And they had they had two hours to kill, <laughs> so they said, "Well, we just nip yeah. in and look at a prevent program." It just the central government is just not that involved in what happens locally. Yes, yeah. there's oversight because of public money. They're just not that involved in the minute on the day to day running of local programs, mm. and they shouldn't be. Mm. Yeah, has anything changed about how you approach de-radicalizing individuals? And can you talk us through how that works? Uh, that's a good question. I would say that since we last spoke the kind of nuts and bolts of how we provide intervention for vulnerable people has stayed by and large the same. Mm. But we are always open to further learning and, and our approach is becoming increasingly sophisticated. So for instance, yeah. we've widened our expertise as, as new threats and risks emerge, then we would widen our net further whenever it comes to the mentors and the organizations mm. that we work with. You know, yeah. so for example, with this emerging threat of uh, mixed or unclear ideologies, then we would work with different intervention providers and mentors with a particular expertise in that area. So our, our base of expertise has grown. But like I said, in general terms, the channel process, which is how we support vulnerable people, like I said, has stayed by and large the same. So if somebody yeah. has a concern, uh, they could refer it in. And following a risk assessment from the police prevent team, it would be taken to the channel panel, which is essentially a safeguarding panel, which is chaired by the local authority, meets monthly uh, and round the table. It would be like any child protection conference or safeguarding panel. Mm -hmm. You would have representatives from different agencies there, such as social services, the health sector, um, education, probation, prisons, youth offending, whoever it may be. And we all try to rally together uh, and come up with the best course of support based on the circumstances of the individual that we're presented with. So whatever interventions we put in place 
are tailored to that in, that individual, whether it's a, a package of mental health support, whether it's mm-hmm. mentoring from a, a particular specialist or, or someone from a particular area. So that, that channel process has stayed the same. But like I said, I think our expertise has widened and our partnership working has widened as well. We work with more relevant professionals now than ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you, um, one thing I was going to ask you about was, um, I can't remember the phrase you used, but it was about these groups who have, um, they don't have a very specific belief. You mean mixed unclear ideologies? That's the one, yeah. Have you found facts with those kind of groups harder? Is that a harder approach to sort of give them solid facts? Are they responding to that? You know, it, it, it's really interesting you mentioned that actually, because we had a very recent case uh, locally mm-hmm. where someone was arguing about immigration figures and how immigrants are going to take over in the UK and the mentor in that case presented the individual with a, a home office fact sheet yeah. detailing what the what the figures were. I, I can't remember offhand. It was something like if you consider we've got a population of 66 million yeah. or whatever and yet there's X number of uh, visa applications each year then there ain't going to be a great replacement anytime soon. But just the very fact that that was a government-produced document meant that it had no impact whatsoever on the individual. They shut it down straight away and just completely disregarded it and would not believe it. And so there was that sort of conspiratorial element. So, yeah, the fact-based argument may work with some people, uh, but with others less so. Mm. And I think one of the striking things about not just the the mixed non-clear ideologies, but from a lot of the different referrals that we get these days, they are so highly individualized and there are so many little niches on the internet and the online space that can speak to them on a, on a highly personal individual level uh, and, yeah, and deal with yeah. whatever real or perceived grievances they may have. What we're finding now is less of an attachment to a group per se, but this kind of sort of pick and mix pulling together of all of these different sort of conspiracies and narratives that that are really individual to them and so in that respect it, it's it's difficult to break yeah william he has something to add yeah just pick up on a couple of points sean made there so when, when we're looking at the mixed and unclear ideologies i think one of the reasons that they're not set on a particular ideology over another so one of the cases that, that i worked on which I, I think sean is probably familiar mm. with was a lad who was he was trying to learn arabic so that he could understand the lectures of Osama bin Laden. He was trying to t- uh, learn um, German so he could understand the speeches of Adolf Hitler. He wanted to understand them all in their, in their native language. He was learning Italian yeah. so that he could understand the speeches of Mussolini. Um, he was immersing himself in in all of these different kind of charismatic orators and individuals who, mm. who, mm. who were renowned mm. for, for, for violence. Uh, Stalin was in there as well, as well as a whole wealth of serial killers. Um, and one of the reasons he couldn't land on any particular one was because he wasn't really that committed to any of them. What he was committed to is that life was desperately unfair. His life was unfair. He was angry at everyone around him for, because he was being treated differently. Um, and he wanted to hurt them. And he wanted to hurt them in a way that would make him remembered. Uh, and he was looking at all these people who'd been remembered for violence and what yeah. they'd said and what yeah. they'd done. Um, and that's how he, he wanted to go out in a blaze of glory and be remembered equally. So it's almost more Columbine style than it, than it is mm, counterterrorism. Mm. Um, but as, as I've said before, it, it, just because someone is not committed to one strand of ideology over another, that doesn't take it away from prevent because the underlying factors can be either identical or very similar. So in, in terms of mixed and unclear, we're less dealing with ideologies. We are dealing with emotion um, mm. and, and how someone feels about themselves and about the, and about the world around them. 
or, or how the world interacts with them. Um, and that's where we have seen, I would say, anecdotally, an increase yeah. of of instances of people with Asperger's, for example, in that cohort. Again, be very, you know, we need to be very, very clear. We're not saying that Asperger's is a reason to be concerned about radicalization. But in those particular cases, we do see a high number mm. of cohorts with, with, with Asperger's. Mm. Um, and I think, again, that's that's the the fixation that we find, particularly in, you know, on the internet and, and attaching to these kind of subcultures online. Uh, and, and just on, on the bit, you know, Sean was talking about the kind of the pick and mix um, in very individualized ideologies. So in terms of um, right-wing extremism per se, we, we largely, from a policy perspective, we tend to categorize right-wing extremism in, in, into three distinct camps. You have your traditional kind of old-school white supremacists and neo-Nazis, largely unchanged. You then have your, um, you then have your identitarians um, or your, your um, kind of white nationalists who put a, a greater emphasis mm. on, on whiteness uh, in inverted commas, but certainly are not steeped in, in white supremacism, not to that extent. And then as you come down the third, the third kind of strand, if you like, would be the traditional, what we would say is far right, English Defence League, Britain first, the kind of um, cultural nationalists. Um, what they all share, I mean, we, from a policy perspective, we create these distinctions. I, I don't think the individual we're working with would see themselves as aligned to any one particular group. And as Sean rightly says, what mm. individuals tend to do now is are drawn more to different factors within those ideologies that they attach to very much. And the phrase Sean uses, you know, we use a lot now, which is pick and mix. So they might draw something from um, the white supremacist narrative, but then two or three things from the cultural nationalist narrative, uh, and then two things from the white nationalist narrative. And then they create their own identity based on that and based on individuals or influences they follow online. And they have a very much a, a, a bespoke unique identity that needs to be looked at holistically by by a safeguarding board to understand what are the drivers for this individual there's no cookie cutter approach to, to disengagement or de-radicalization it's purely about the individual yeah. what they do all share is this concept of degeneracy that somehow the there's been a, a a moral collapse of Western culture, a moral collapse of the, the family unit, a moral collapse of religious identity, of having pride in your nation state, although those kind of issues. There is, that does run, run through um, all of those different kind of strands. But it's, it's, I think it would be fair to say that the ideology is not typically strong with these individuals. Um, certainly within the identitarian and, and the cultural nationalist movements, it, it's less strong. And what we're seeing more, as I sort of alluded to earlier, is an attachment to radical subcultures, particularly music. Music is incredibly powerful, um, has a, an incredibly powerful role in this. Uh, a history of substance misuse, whether that's drink or drugs, is quite is quite common, more common than it is with Islamist cases. Um, a history of low-level offending or petty crime tends to be there as well. And uh, dysfunctional families. All, all of these we see in Islamism radicalization as well from time to time but it's way yeah. more prevalent within the yeah. right-wing right extremist context. So those are, the, those are the factors we are honing in on in terms of providing a solution of disengagement and de-radicalization because the ideology um, is not strong. It's a lot easier to disempower it because by fixing those other factors. And what we are essentially doing is creating positive and pro-social networks and, and peer groups that, that draw people away from the negative influences of groups that subscribe to these ideologies. Yeah. 
Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. Well, look, guys, we've pretty much hit the hour. Do you guys have any sort of final thoughts that are important to you that we haven't discussed or there's something you want to kind of continue on that we have discussed? All I was going to say is it's just there is a lot of hot air around prevent. Uh, I think, you know, to, to, to bring this right back to where we started, the by and large, I think the support that prevent attracts is far more widespread than, pe- than people would would have you believe. The only thing I would say, though, is yeah. I think there is still a reticence, and I absolutely understand this, um, of making a referral of someone we're concerned about. And the reason there is that reticence or anxiety is because people genuinely don't know what's, what series of events am I going to trigger if I put my hand up or pick up the phone mm. and say, I'm worried about Kevin who lives next door and the swastika's hanging out of his window. What, what is now going to happen to Kevin? Uh, so my, my parting thought would be to those that, that listen to this, this podcast is particularly families and friends uh, of individuals that, that, that we might be concerned about is to say, have trust in the process, have trust in the Sean's and the wills of this world and the safeguarding panels who've been doing this for 20, 30 years, long before prevent was even thought of, who know how to look at, an, at a case, look at an individual and understand what are the unique personal factors here that need resolving over and above ideology and to have trust that that process will work. It is consensual. It is voluntary. And at any point, people can disengage from the process. Nothing will happen. The, the only time a criminal charge would be applied is if a criminality has taken place. The process itself is about social care and safeguarding and, and helping majority vulnerable people to move away to a safer space. Even if those individuals have their own sense of agency and are not deemed particularly vulnerable, there is still a way to intervene in their lives in an, in an early capacity to just put in positive positive structures around them and in their lives that can stop them being drawn to more harmful behaviors, actions, or ideologies that would do them harm as well as potentially the people around them. So have faith in the process. Yeah, I would echo everything that Will's just said. I mean, um, I was told recently by a person actually that he believes that prevent kept him out of prison. Now, this is someone who hasn't necessarily backed away completely from all of his, from, from the ideology per se that he was, he was following. But that, that mm. aspiration to violence is pretty much gone. Um, I think that, that leads us into wider questions around disengagement versus de-radicalization. And, and I think that if all we can do is stop the violent acts from taking place, then to some extent, we have to deem that a success. But what I would say is that, mm. th- that this chap that I was talking to, I've got a lot of respect for him, a lot of time for him. We have some really, really deep conversations, but goodness, so he has got some views that I would consider to be utterly abhorrent and disgusting. And I would tell him so, mm. but I would also show empathy and respect and listen to him rather than just shutting him down. And I think that's one of the ways, as unpalatable as that might sound, to a lot of people on the outside. I think that's one of the ways in which we in Prevent achieve a lot of trust and success amongst referrals in that they're not immediately dismissed as you know, extremists, yeah. as a lost cause, as Nazis or whatever it may be. Sometimes at a very basic human level, we just have to show a bit of empathy and, and listen to people, not for one minute condoning their views or, or, or what they were setting out to do, but in order to try and move them back to a safer place. I'm not saying that it'll work for everyone. You know, prevent isn't a silver bullet, mm. but I am I am an optimist. I do think that people can change. You know, I think that hate is a learned behavior and, and therefore it can be unlearned. And so I know that both Will and myself and many, many others in the wider prevent network 
have worked really closely with people who have maybe aspired to travel to places like Syria at the height of the conflict, and they've turned from that path because of their prevent intervention. And we've worked mm-hmm. with you know former extremists and people who were susceptible to extreme right-wing ideologies, and they've now turned and gone on a much more positive path. We always need to be cognizant of, of cases where prevent doesn't work, of cases where maybe an individual is beyond our reach or beyond our threshold. But at the end of the day, we are talking about, I suppose, the the softer end of counterterrorism. And when we get it right, and when we get it right early, mm. it, it works really, really well. So I would, I would implore people to have, I suppose, faith and trust in the network of prevent practitioners out there who are doing their absolute best day in day out to try and to try and keep people safe well done both of you for what you've done is uh you know the work you guys do sounds fantastic thanks thank you thank you so i don't know if anybody ever says that to you but you say how rare it is for us to get a thanks from people yeah Wow, yeah. <laughs> you stunned us into silence there, Chris. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> but anyway, well, well, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm sorry it's taken us two years to kind of catch up again. And thank you very much. And again, you know, well done for everything you guys have done because it's, it's important work and uh, it's nice to know that there are people out there doing it. So thank you. Oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies.